Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you love us so much that you tell us the truth about ourselves, even when it hurts, and it's so hard for us to accept that we will go to any lengths to deny, rationalize, excuse, blame, uh, to get out of the judgment we're under. Lord, you tell us that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has gone to his own way. You tell us that the heart of man is deceitfully wicked who can understand it. And you tell us that the wages of our sin is death. This is bad news for us, but Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see it as good news because it comes from our Creator who loves us and has done everything we needed to have this horrific condition restored, redeemed, forgiven, made right. Lord, we come before you and your word this morning needing humble hearts teachable hearts, hearts that don't um, reflexively uh, deflect this bad news. Lord, help us to see that we need to take you at your word and your assessment of us. Help us now, each of us, Lord, to hear from you. Pray the Spirit would work in ways he has to for us to weep over our sin and grieve over it like never before and repent like never before and find freedom and forgiveness like never before. So we come before you asking uh, big things, knowing you're big enough to bring them to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 3 is where we are this morning in our series through Genesis 1 through 11. This passage tells us where it all went wrong. It helps us understand the human condition in ways we've got to understand. Uh, I have found in my life the truthfulness of God's word is often confirmed so powerfully in, in the explanatory power of the word. I look around at my own condition, the condition of this world. I look at the pattern of human nature through human history and in our present day, and I am stunned over and over again of just how accurately the Bible explains what it is we have as humans in this world. It explains it beautifully. It explains the good and glorious and beautiful. It explains the horrific and ugly and dark. It explains this conflicting reality in each of us of being made in God's image and very good, part of a very good creation at the same time. It explains why in each human heart is great darkness, great evil, and great sin. Here we have paradise lost. Genesis chapter 3. We'll actually begin with the last verse of chapter 2. Genesis 2, 25. 
And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Well, there it is. There's this. Uh, to many of us, very familiar story. To many of us, maybe a story that's too familiar. Maybe a story that uh, we just don't understand very well, don't know what to do with. But this is the story that anchors our understanding of where it all went wrong. Our uh, four parents went terribly wrong in their decision to take the place of God to assume they could, by themselves, independent of God, discern good from evil for themselves and go their own way, independent of their Creator. It's a tragic story, a horrible story, a story that should bring us to tears, but a story with powerful explanatory power. A story that helps us understand how horribly broken the world is. If you read the news at all, 
if you pay attention to history at all, if you pay attention to the state of things in your immediate life right now or the state of your own heart right now, you will have to admit we've got serious problems. We've got serious brokenness and darkness and evil. And as Martin Luther said, every one of us recognizes an inward curvature of the self, a profound selfishness, self-absorption that is not inclined to honor God or love others at all. And all the work seems to be have to go in the other direction toward love, toward God, and we don't have in ourselves the ability to bring that about. We have a terribly broken world, a terribly broken world. And the more, more aware you are of the world, the more you truly pay attention, the more that will be undeniable. We go through cycles in human history where we, we end up with unbridled optimism about the human condition. There will be periods of economic or social progress, and we'll say, that's it, we've just got this figured out. If we just had a little more time and a little more education, a little more social uh, systems in place, then we would finally get utopia. We'd finally get it all figured out, and then a war starts. Or the stock market crashes, and we see the way people cannibalize each other, and we say, how could it be this way? I came across this a couple of weeks ago, and it was just a stunning admission by a woman named Beatrice Webb, who was a brilliant uh, architect of the social welfare system in Britain uh, in the 1800s. She and her husband and other brilliant leaders started the London School of Economics, and she was a socialist and an activist and an architect of the British system as we know it. And she kept a diary every day. And one day, she went back and read a diary entry she had written from 35 years ago. In 1925, she went and read a diary entry she had written 35 years previously. Now, this is after World War I. This is in the, in the realities that World War I had brought about. And listen to what she says, reflecting on that journal entry. She, she said, in 19... In, in 1890, I wrote this, quote, I have staked everything on the essential goodness of human nature. She goes on, now, 35 years later, I have realized how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in us and how little they seem to change like greed for wealth and power and how mere social machinery will never change that. We must ask better things from human nature, but will we get a response? No amount of science or knowledge has been of any avail. And unless we curb the bad impulse, how will we get better social institutions? A stunning admission from a woman who had banked everything on the basic goodness of humans when she sees the effects of human evil. And I bet she didn't really even know who Adolf Hitler was yet. <laughs> she thought World War I was bad. She hadn't seen anything yet. Well, that's where we are. I, I really, you know, there are some things we believe as Christians that, that require a lot of work for me to continue to believe, to hold to, 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 to seek faith to believe in. 
Um, I don't find it hard to believe that God made the world. It's incredibly designed. I don't find it hard to believe um, a lot of things God teaches us. But, but I, I do think we find it very hard to believe that we're sinners. Uh, we have a really hard time just flat out admitting our sinful condition. Even though I think it's the easiest thing for us to prove. I don't think there's anything Christians believe that's easier to demonstrate and prove than human sin. Yet it's incredibly hard for us to believe. I don't think there's anything harder for us to truly accept. And so this passage is powerfully helpful for us to understand the human condition as we know it and experience on a daily basis. I want to make sure we get the main point of the passage. Uh, Here's what Alan Ross says is the main point. I think he says it well. A thorough knowledge of the word of God and unwavering trust in the goodness of God are absolutely essential for spiritual victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's a loaded sentence. Let me read it again. A thorough knowledge of the word of God and an unwavering trust in the goodness of God are absolutely essential for spiritual victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. When we take this passage to heart this morning, the the result should be greater victory over our greatest problems of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that comes through a trust in the Word of God and primarily His goodness. I think that's the primary quality of God that is denied by Adam and Eve and ourselves every day of our lives, according to this passage. Uh, the last verse of chapter 25, I think, the reason I started there is because I, I believe it describes the condition for which we were created, naked and unashamed, before God and before one another. Not literally, but, but there should be in our lives, because of God's great love for us and grace toward us, a, a relationship with him of freedom and intimacy and freedom from guilt and shame. So before God, we have a naked and unashamed state. And that leads then to a kind of freedom we have to be who God made us to be in the midst of him reconciling us and and restoring us. There's a freedom that we would have before one another. That's the state for which we're created. But then we move into a tragic situation where God's word is denied and doubted and God is defamed in all of this. We're created for intimacy with him, but that's not how we live by our fallen natures. The first point I want us to realize is that we were created to know God and to trust God and therefore know and trust his word. And when we're doing these things, we have a freedom, an intimacy, a relational depth, a relational depth with God and other people that we are freed to have. And to know God and to trust God is to know and trust his word. Those two things have to go together. We can't talk about knowing God or trusting God if we don't know and trust his word. The primary way we know God and trust God is to know him and trust him through his word. Many of us know the greatest commandment, as Jesus says, is in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, Therefore, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and Jesus adds mind, and then strength. Now that's the great commandment, but do we know it immediately follows the great commandment? 
I wonder how many of us know what follows. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your might. And then says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. To know God and to love God means you know and love his word. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. The Great Commission not only has making disciples and baptizing them, it has and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And so knowing God means knowing his word and loving God means loving his word and obeying his word. That's got to go together in our minds. The second thing is we don't know good and evil on our own. We don't know good and evil left to ourselves. We don't know what's true and what isn't left to ourselves. We are limited. We're finite. Even before we're fallen, we're finite. We're limited. We don't have all knowledge. We don't have all wisdom. We need our creator who does have those to tell us what's true. Adam and Eve went astray. They demanded they determine good and evil for themselves when they partook of, partook of the tree and disobeyed God. They said, no, we will decide what's true. We will decide what's good for ourselves, independent of him. We don't know it. That's why Hebrews says, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Not only don't we know the difference between good and evil, independent of God, we end up flipping the equation and calling evil good and good evil. And that so describes our day today. Last thing before we dive into this passage more directly is I hope you realize as we read through this that the primary warfare is spiritual warfare. We don't solve the human condition by external realities but internal spiritual realities. That's where everything goes astray. We've got a battle in the spiritual realm. That's why Ephesians says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but over uh, rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers of this present darkness and against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And, and so that means our primary weapons of warfare over sin and evil are spiritual, like prayer, like the word of God, like the gospel of God. And so if we're not seeking to engage the battles we fight in relationships, in our own lives, if we're not willing to engage those primarily spiritually with things like prayer, the gospel, and the word of God, we're not serious about fighting this battle. I read a book recently called The Praying Life by Paul Miller. It was a very convicting book, best book I've ever read on prayer, at least for me. It was so helpful. But he had a line in there that was tremendously convicting. One of those lines that makes you close the book, take a walk. You know, I, every day of my life as a, as a pastor and a, a prof and as a dad especially, I, I'm, I'm wanting to see change in hearts. And I, I, he, he had this line and he said, you have no right to expect any change in the hearts of your children if you're not praying for that change. And I realized at that moment, I preach to my kids way more than I pray for my kids. And, and we've got to realize that the battle over sin is a spiritual battle fundamentally. So how does it all go astray? Well, the craftiness or shrewdness of the, the satanic 
Lee used serpent is highlighted. He's crafty. He's shrewd. Now, being crafty or shrewd is not necessarily a bad thing. Actually, we as Christians are commanded to be shrewd, to understand the world and people and how it all works, to be uh, shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves is something we're called to be. So craftiness, understanding how things work and acting accordingly is not necessarily a bad thing. It becomes bad when the goals are dishonoring to God. And that's exactly what we have here, shrewdness used in an anti-God way. And that's exactly what he does. And he, he, ha- he has a very clear way of accomplishing this. The first thing Satan does is move in and doubt God's word. See what he says in verse 1, halfway through. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, I don't think... The doubt he's casting on God's word here is a doubt of information or a doubt of clarity. I I don't think he's saying, are you remembering that correctly? I think what he's saying is, you can't be serious. It's a doubt of mockery. It's a doubt of sneering. That's why I read it the way I did. He's saying, really? Really? God said you can't eat of anything in the garden. That, That doesn't make much sense, does it? It's a sneering. It's a mockery. And it's creating an atmosphere. It's not an argument. It's not a refutation of anything God said. It's an atmosphere. It's an attitude of the heart that is being created that makes us pull away from God and his word. And I wonder if this isn't a far greater challenge for us than well-reasoned arguments against the Christian view of things. I wonder if we don't have a fear of the snare more than we do of the argument. The last thing we want is people going, what? You don't believe that, do you? Or a lot of people saying that. You're on the wrong side of history, you know. And and people just sneering with mockery. This is how Tim Keller uh, describes what's going on here. The fall of the human race starts not with an action, but with an attitude of the heart. Not with an act, but with a sneer. The serpent is denying what God said by mocking what God has said. You can't be serious. Boy, does that describe our age. We have a very cynical, sneering culture. And and some of the most influential people in this culture are primarily sneering people, mocking people. It seems like every every show on Comedy Central and Jon Stewart and these shows that show clips and then their primary argument is to go, (laughs) And, and that's about it, you know, half the time. They just say, you can't be serious. We cannot fear the sneer. we got to make t-shirts. And don't fear the sneer. Yeah, wouldn't that be great? Uh, we can't. It, it, mockery cannot intimidate us to veer from what God has said is true. Don't veer because of the sneer. How's that? Um, so, so he questions God's word. And then he distorts it. He, goes, he doubts and then he distorts he turns God into a legalist. He says, so can't eat of any tree in the garden, huh? What a legalistic killjoy. And Eve actually calls him on it. Almost. She said, well, no, actually, we can find out what he says if we just go one page over. Look at verse 16 of chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you, shall, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. So different than Satan's portrayal of things. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely 
die. That's what God says. Adam, uh, uh, Satan can completely distorts this. And then Eve clears it up almost. Almost. What does she say in response? The woman says to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden. Verse 3. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. But then she adds, neither shall you touch it. You know, maybe he is a little extreme. Maybe I'll add to it to justify uh, the unreasonableness of God's commands. Do you know 70% of college students regularly cheat? 70%. And do you know by far the number one reason they cheat? They say because the expectations of the professor are unreasonable. So I'm just making it reasonable. I'm making it just because it's unjust. It's amazing how we do things in our minds to justify our sin. And that's what's going on here. It just seems extreme, doesn't it? I mean, why would he do that? He must not be good is what's happening. Why would he do that? He distorts God's word. Uh, and, And Eve starts to correct him, but then goes down that path as well. God is extravagantly generous. He creates, as we've seen in the last few weeks, with joy and with a goodness and for our good, for all, all of it for us to enjoy. That's how Paul describes the creation to Timothy. God who richly provides everything for us to enjoy. But no, we say, no, he's kind of legalistic. He's kind of narrow. He he doesn't have our best interest in mind. And then he follows that path one more step and just flat out denies God's word. What does he say? The serpent says, verse 4 to the woman, you will not surely die. God's a liar. God doesn't know what he's talking about. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. So he denies God, and then he defames God. He says, look, the reason he lied to you is because he doesn't want you to be like him. He's envious. He's jealous. He doesn't want you to attain the same status he has. He's trying to keep you down. You better fend for yourself. Don't trust him. He's not good. You go take matters into your own hands. You decide for yourself. You run the show, not God. And that's the bottom line question. Who's in charge? Is it God or is it the creator or the creature? Who is in charge? That's the big question. And we need to realize that at the heart of sin is taking the place of God in our own minds and hearts. Saying, I'm in charge, not you, to our creator. Every time I have ever sinned in my life, a basic transaction goes on in my mind and heart that says, I know better than God. I'm not convinced he is going to run this world the way I think he should and I think I can do a better job so in this matter I will look at this I will say this I will do this because I know better than God that's the bottom line it seems insane because it is it's it's the most insane thing we could do but it's also morally culpable we are culpable for this sin we are responsible for it That's the problem, and Eve takes the bait, and she sees the beauty and the goodness of the fruit, and the fruit was beautiful. The fruit was good. There was a goodness to it, and that's what we need to realize, that in temptation, there is a very good and right legitimate attraction to something God has made, grounded in real good attractions God has given us and desires God has given us. 
The problem isn't the fruit. The problem isn't the desires. The problem isn't the attraction. The problem is going our own and leaving God's design and ways in the way we enjoy these things. Yes, it's pleasurable. Of course it is. God made it. Yes, there's a beauty to it, yes. But when we take matters into our own hands, the beautiful things God has made for our pleasure and His glory rot in our hands. We never find the pleasure that God intends for us to find. We never find the satisfaction and the joy He intends for us to find. And they take the bait and they see the goodness of these things. And they're overtaken by shame. Verse 7. They hide themselves. They make for themselves ridiculous coverings so completely uh, insufficient to cover their shame, to cover their nakedness. They're going to need God to do this for them, which we will see him do next week. But they're overtaken and they're helpless to solve their shame and their nakedness. Now, we with them have all become hiders. Where Every day our inclination is to hide from God as if we ever could and hide from each other as if we ever ultimately could. We are now uh, naked and shamed by that nakedness. And then God takes the initiative. In in verses 8 through 11, we see this beautiful display of God's kindness and his mercy in moving toward us. And he starts asking us questions, not because he doesn't know the answers to the questions, but because he gets right down on our level and graciously says, where'd you go? What'd you do? Why'd you do it? Like a good parent getting right down on the level with their child, saying, what have you done? What have you gotten yourself into? And they don't own it. They blame. Did you catch that pattern? Eve blames the serpent. And before that, he goes to Adam first. Even though Eve led the way, he goes to the man first. And he says, Adam, where are you? What'd you do? And he says, well, uh, the woman who you gave me ends up blaming God for the whole thing. And the woman passes the buck too, right toward the serpent. Says, well, that serpent that you led in the garden, that's what happened. And then I ate. They don't own it. And if there's anything we need to do to find freedom is own our sin. Don't explain it away. We've got all these false ways of apologizing, don't we? Like, I'm sorry you were offended. Or I didn't, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Then are you really sorry? What are you apologizing for if you didn't mean to do it? Is there no intent there? Then this is just a mistake. And that's the way we talk about our sin. A mistake, an indiscre- a youthful indiscretion. Instead of active rebellion. Instead of something that really did incur guilt. We have ways of apologizing that manipulate people, saying, oh, I can't believe I did that. You're going to hate me forever, aren't you? It's all about us still. It's still all about us. The, uh, I'm sorry I upset you, which is really just saying, I'm sorry you're so overly sensitive. Here's how we repent, like David, for adultery and murder. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. The wages of sin is death, and God needs to save us, and we will never get to the point of salvation and forgiveness until we get to the end of ourselves to see our sin for what it is and our utter inability to solve the problem. 
What possibly could overcome this kind of human rebellion and injustice and disobedience? God himself, through his son, is the only solution. Here's how he does it. We disobey. We don't trust God or his word or his goodness. But Jesus the son takes on a human nature and does trust God and his word and his goodness. And he undergoes temptation, just like Adam and Eve, just like we, and we all fail like they did. And Jesus comes, and tempted by Satan himself at the beginning of his public ministry, he overcomes the temptation. How? By trusting God's word. He keeps repeating, it is written, Satan. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He trusts the word of God and the goodness of God and throws the scriptures right in the face of Satan and overcomes temptation for us. And he does at the end of his ministry too. When he's tempted not to go to the cross, but then says, not my will, but thy will be done, he obeys and trusts the word of God and the goodness of God, and he goes to a cross and dies in our place. That's what happens. The Bible in Romans 5 describes the one man, Adam, who incurs sin for all humanity is replaced now by the one man, Jesus, who not only takes our sin, but gives us his righteousness. Jesus trusted God and obeyed him by dying on a tree. They went to a tree in their distrust of God. Jesus went to a tree in their trust of God. Here's the amazing thing. We sin fundamentally by taking God's place, his authority. And God solves that problem by taking our place through the Son. That's what he does. And it, this, this scene here in this garden has all these same elements Jesus has in his garden experience on the way to the cross of toil and sweat and thorns and conflict and blood and a tree and death and dust and a seed. And Adam is taken over by Christ. And he takes our shame and nakedness and sin and punishment so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. The old hymn says, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress, midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy I shall lift up my head. Psalm 112, one says, blessed is the man who fears the Lord and admits his sin. Blessed is the one who trusts the Lord, who alone forgives. My kids growing up listened to a song that is my favorite of all time that my kids listen to, and there's a line that I think of all the time. Jesus died, so I don't have to hide anymore. We're all hiders in our sin, and because Jesus died, we don't have to hide anymore. You know, it's amazing how the verbs of the fall become the verbs of redemption. We'll take the Lord's Supper. There's a dietary restriction option here, but the way we do it is take the bread, dip it in the cup to remind us of Jesus' body and blood that was given for us. And what's astounding is that the, the same verbs for the fall of take, eat, gave are used in this. When Jesus at the Last Supper takes the bread and he gives it and we eat it. But there's actually a verb that gets added now. He takes it and before he gives it, he breaks it. We've got a new verb that had to be added to the equation if we were ever going to be redeemed. He needed to die in our place. 
He needed to be broken and, and die for us as our substitute sacrifice, and that's what he does. Jesus took the bread, and he broke it, and he gave it, and we eat it. I mean, Eve took that apple, and she ate it, and she gave it, but Jesus fixes all of that by using those same verbs, adding one to this wonderful table we partake of now. You know, the, the servers were co- will come functioning as priests, offering you these symbols of what Jesus has done. This is for you if you have trusted Christ, if you've turned from your sin and trusted him and are a new creature in Christ. If not, I'm so glad you're here. But this is one of the very few times we say, you are not welcome here because this is for those who have truly been forever changed by faith in Christ. If you've never done that, what a great time to do it to turn from your sin and trust Jesus in repentance and saving faith. And you can do this for the first time. You can even come up and be prayed for if you don't want to take the elements or sit there and pray and ask God to show you some of the truths we've been talking about. But as the servers come forward, we'll take the Lord's Supper together now, which is the perfect way to conclude a sermon on where it all went wrong because this is where it all went right. Lord, help us now as we partake of these beautiful symbols, these emblems of Jesus taking our place because we took your place in our own minds and hearts. Lord, thank you for uh, the fact that your church has done what we're about to do uh, for a couple of thousand years, and we join that wonderful um, lineage of those who've realized that we can't solve our sin problem. We needed you to do it for us, and you did it by sending your son to take our place. Lord, would you please bring us to a point of true repentance? And as uh, we sang in the hymn this morning, uh, Lord, incline me to repent. May I now my sins lament. Now my foul revolt deplore. Weep, believe, and sin no more. We're grateful, Lord, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.